Uh, thank you all again for being here this Sunday afternoon. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up uh, with us. You know, we're, we're going to go ahead and jump to have your text ready in Leviticus. Uh, we'll get there in just a moment. Uh, let's go to Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus chapter 18. Just to re- remind everybody kind of where we're at, uh, this is our second week on the topic of uh, homosexuality. Remember, with dealing with cultural issues, we dealt with abortion, transgenderism, now we're dealing with homosexuality uh, for a number of weeks. And uh, we're going to pray, and then I want to talk a little bit about um, confessions and creeds and things like that in our church history, and why that matters and why it relates to this topic. Um, Papa Fred, could you open yes, us sir. in prayer? Um, Father God, I'm, I'm really led to the, to the awesome uh, celebration of life of Liliana yesterday and the opening words by Bob McAndrew. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this God shall be our God even unto death. Father, that is... A, an awesome promise. And, and um, Bob reminded us that God is many things to us, but our God. And gosh, we need a God. We need someone to lead us through this life, even unto that day when we leave this life and go home to be with you. And Father, thank you for that reminder yesterday. And thank you for Genesis 1 and 2, where you, as we've discussed many times before in this series, that you gave us a blueprint. You gave us an outline. You gave us some guidelines for human relationships, family relationships, sexual relationships, and and. From nothing, you created everything. And, and in those two first chapters of the Bible, you gave us uh, your plan. And, uh, and what we're trying to do, I think, Lord, and, and help us this afternoon as we uh, try to uh, uh, educate others as well as even educate ourselves into the impact of all of these uh, issues on our on our churches, on our society, on our life in this uh, 2022. And, and thank you, Lord, and, and, and please lead us today. Gosh knows we need it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this may sound like we're kind of taking a detour here, but I, I think it is relevant. Um, in church history, there have been uh, creeds and confessions that you've written. You probably have heard of like the Nicene Creed with the Chalcedonian Creed and these different creeds throughout church history. More recently, I, I don't know if I'd call them creeds, but statements that people sign. Uh, you have the, uh, you mentioned the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy from a few decades ago, signed by a whole bunch of people that we would know and respect. Uh, more recently, there's been other ones. One is called the Nashville Statement, which is dealing with human sexuality and gender and those things, which is not that old. It's just maybe, what, five or five, six, five or six years old? At most, yeah. And, and just a word about that. We don't believe that those things are infallible, Obviously, they're made by people, not inspired by the Spirit. But there is something to be said for a large collection of 
godly people coming together and working very hard on agreeing on some particular statement because while the Chicago statement is not infallible, although it talks about biblical infallibility, it, 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 the statement doesn't claim to be that. But those statements are important because it really does allow people to not get squishy with biblical language. Uh, in other words, a lot of people will say, I believe the Bible. But then when you actually say, do you believe that God made us male and female and that marriage is only for a biological man and woman because those are the only kinds of men and women? Then they say, well, no, no, I don't think God teaches that. Well, they say they believe the Bible, but then they deny what the Bible says. So what do you need? You need creeds, you need confessions, you need statements that make it really clear what we think the Bible teaches on these issues, and people will sign them or recite them or quote them. And those are, again, not to replace the Bible or displace the Bible. They are there to clarify the Bible. That's their goal, to make clear who's on what team here, who who really does believe what Scripture says. And it's a teaching tool, too. I remember Luther uh, was concerned early in the Reformation that the man on the street didn't really understand of theology, and so he came out with his small catechism first Mm -hmm. and used the uh, Lord's Prayer, the uh, Apostles' Creed, uh, Ten Commandments as teaching tools. And there was a small little pamphlet-sized booklet, and by then they had the printing press, and so they were widely distributed for the, and that's what creeds are intended to do is to educate uh, and teach uh, certain biblical principles. They aren't infallible, like right. you said, but they're useful. Right. And uh, you have things like the Westminster Confession of Faith. You have uh, the London Baptist Confession. Heidelberg. The Heidelberg oh, Catechism. So th- these are extremely useful and helpful tools to get cl- uh, clarity on what the Bible teaches. Can you say a word about the Nashville Statement, Greg, from a few years ago? Yeah, the Nashville Statement was um, a statement produced by a number of really conservative, strong on the sufficiency of Scripture, on God's design according to Scripture. They, uh, it was Baptist, Presbyterians, non and I mean, it was a, a large variety of people got together and they crafted this statement on human sexuality, on what it is and what it is not, what gender is, what it's not. And it caused no end of controversy. Um, and there's, there's, some, there's some issues we're going to look at later. I think next week we're planning to go a little deeper into the Nashville statement, what it actually says, but we want to kind of get you thinking on it. And if you want to look it up between now and next week, just so you can look at it yourself, kind of be familiar with the language, the discussion we'll have next week will probably be um, more beneficial to you uh, if you'll just, you know, do a read through, you know. It's pretty brief. It's not super long. I mean, you could print it out, jot a few questions down, a few notes, you know, just to kind of get your your brain kind of going that way. Um, But the point of it is simply, like you're saying, it's you know, we see the culture around us and even many who are professing Christians wanting to change the way the church talks about um, sexuality, about gender and, and things like that. And the purpose of the Nashville Statement is to say, look, we are going to stand um, on Scripture and in the stream of historic Christianity and we're not going to depart from the sound teaching that Scripture clearly gives and from the, the, the interpretation that has been passed down to us. So obviously, Scripture is the final authority, but we also consider what the church has had to say throughout the centuries on these things, because there's things we can learn um, about that. And the Nashville Statement is simply re-articulating, and w- with a more contemporary focus, biblical Christian teaching on human sexuality and gender. 
Um, and like I said, it, it, it caused a lot of controversy because there's many in the church who, who want to adopt some form of um, sinless homosexual mindset desires called same-sex attraction, uh, stuff like that. And so the purpose of the Nashville Statement is to say, look, this is what Scripture is teaching, and this is what it is not teaching, and if you go here, you're out of the bounds of Scripture. Um, and so, again, the purpose of it is simply to bring clarity to the church. Um, you know, so, again, you think of, think of it as a teaching tool. You go through a statement like, you know, any of the confessions Mark mentioned, the Nashville statement. The point is, is to give very helpful summaries of things so that if you have a discussion with someone, you have some language you can pull from, language that's clearly rooted in Scripture um, and in sound interpretation and you can use that language in conversation. You can use that language to combat false teaching and, and strange ideas. Uh, because sometimes, let's just be honest, we, we encounter certain things, certain ideas, and something in us says this is wrong, but we can't really articulate in that moment what is wrong. And a statement like the Nashville Statement gives us some, some directions we can go in terms of what we're saying so that we can actually articulate why we think this is wrong and not just be like, well, I disagree with you, but I, I can't really tell you why. And, and just to give a, a parallel example with the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy from a few decades ago, they, they made a big deal to use the word inerrant to describe the Bible in that statement. The Bible is the inerrant word of God without error. Well, that was actually highly controversial. It still is because people will say, I believe the Bible is inspired, but I don't believe it is inerrant. I believe God inspired it. Like, like you could hear a song that was inspired, right? It was an inspiring song. Well, the, the, the Bible is inspired by God, but it still has errors in it. it. It still has flaws. It is not infallible. And so the reason these statements are so important is to say, no, 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 we need you to affirm the word without error, the word inerrant. Do you affirm that Scripture is inerrant? And if the person says, no, it has errors, then there's a deep flaw in their understanding of Scripture. And so the, these statements are, again, meant to clarify basic and important issues. They're not meant to take the place of the Bible, they're, they're meant to, uh, to be an aid, like you said, a, a teaching tool, uh, it, especially for children, too, oh, as, yeah. as they're raised up. Oh, they have the, them, uh, the catechisms for small children as well. Right. I'm sure you have them for your, your kids. Yeah, we, we do have uh, the New City Catechism, whatever right. it's called, where it which is, those things. Which is great. It, yeah. It's easy to understand, and even I can understand it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, we, we, yeah, with our kids, it's like, uh, what is the, I don't remember what the question is, but the, the answer is that God is three persons and one God about the Trinity. He's three persons and one God. They don't have to explain more than that. They just need to know there are three persons, yet one God. And th those are wonderful teaching tools for, for, for children. Anything else on that? Yeah, I want to I say one more quick thing just to, to underscore the importance of, of confessions that are timely based on what we're looking at. In church history, Fred, Fred will know, probably know more about this than I do. Um, he's the church history <laughs> expert over here. Um, and he was there, so. <laughs> um, but no, like, you, you've heard of Arianism, right? Arian, Arian, uh, Arius was a, a heretic, a false teacher in, I think it was the 3rd or 4th century. Um, and, and he was, based on language that he saw in the Bible, he was trying to teach that Jesus was not the eternal Son of God. And he, here's, the, here's the thing. Arius would say, hey, I want to be faithful to the Bible. He said, this, this is God's word, and God's word's going to direct me. And he was saying, you know, the Bible alone, this, that, and the other. Um, and it's teaching that Jesus isn't the eternal Son of God. 
And so some of the confessions that came out of that area, the, uh, that era, the Nicene Creed, later the Chal- Chalcedonian, Chalcedonian Creed, um, are articulating very clearly what the Bible means by the language it uses when it talks about Jesus as the only begotten Son of God. Arius would say, you know, he's the firstborn, he's this, that must mean he's created, but when you actually look at the language and how those terms are used, it doesn't have to mean that Jesus was created. It actually means something entirely different. Um, but again, Arius was one of those. He said, I just, I just want to believe the Bible. just want to believe the Bible. But he was getting the Bible really wrong. So we have to say, yes, it's great that we affirm that this is God's word. But then we have to be clear, what does it actually say? What is it actually not saying? Um, and that's, again, where a confession comes in handy because it helps us understand, hey, sometimes there's, there's terms and there's language that seem like it could kind of go either way. How am I supposed to make sense of that? A confession or a creed comes in and it says, it gives good explanation as to what these words mean, how they're typically used, how we should understand them, so that we're not led astray by someone. You know, I mean, even Satan in the, gar- um, in the, in the wilderness misquoted Scripture to Jesus to try to get Jesus to sin. Um, and the only way you're going to counter someone who's misquoting Scripture is to quote Scripture rightly and to, to make sure when you're quoting it that you're using it rightly. So, again, sorry, I'll, no, no, I'll well, stop on let that. Let me just one more thing. Baptists have had a bad reputation. <clears throat> just, it, this is a, a, Baptists have said these kinds of things. No creed but the Bible is a statement that you'll sometimes hear. And I can admire part mm-hmm. of what's being said there. Of course, the person is saying that their ultimate authority is God's word, not what man writes as a creed. Okay, fully affirm that. But I, I think it is short-sighted to use that phrase, to say no creed but the Bible. Well, as soon as you start saying, well, what do you believe about the Bible? You're going to be saying what is your creed, what you mm-hmm. believe, and you're going to be putting it in your own words. And so we might as well be checking our words with what church tradition has generally said about things like the Trinity or things like that. So, of course, the Bible is our final authority, but creeds have an important place in yeah. the life of the church. Now, we're going to jump into. Some intense verses here, so prepare yourself uh, in, the, in the midst of Leviticus here. And, and before I even read these verses, I'll just say that as we get into the issue of homosexuality again, one of the big issues that's always brought up, it is brought up over and over again, is in the book of Leviticus, you can't quote that because you're just picking and choosing from the book of Leviticus because Leviticus has all kinds of rules in it and how are we knowing which ones we're supposed to heed and which ones we're not today in the new covenant era. So let's look at a few verses here. And uh, again, these verses, uh, they, don't, uh, they don't beat around the bush. They tell you exactly what they are saying. We'll start in uh, Leviticus 18. We'll start in verse, uh, let's start in verse 20. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited uh, vomited out its inheritance. Skip over to uh, chapter 20. Look with me down at verse 10 of Leviticus 20. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, uh, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. 
If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. And it, it goes on. There's a lot more here that you could read. But I hope you understand, Leviticus is just giving you all kinds, and there's a lot I'm not reading here. There's all kinds of things that are being put in very, uh, there's, there's just very clear, they're telling you exactly what they're saying. The two verses that we obviously want to focus in on, let's go back and reread them, 18.22 and 20.13. So 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. And then go to 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now, again, these are crystal clear in what they are saying. But let me just throw this out to you guys and we can start talking about this. If someone hears that and says, yes, of course, but Leviticus says, like it does over here in another chapter nearby, that you're not supposed to put two kinds of seed in the same soil. You're not supposed to wear mixed fiber clothing. Uh, that's also considered sinful. It sounds like you're just picking and choosing what verses you want from Leviticus. And it sounds like what's making your choice is bigotry, really, or a, or, or a kind of prejudice against homosexuals rather than actually just being... If you're going to believe the Bible, then don't wear mixed fiber clothing, don't plant two seeds in the soil, don't do any of these things that are commanded here. Why are you picking and choosing? How, how, would, how would you begin to respond to that? Well, one way, and I know we've mentioned this before, is to understand the different kind of uses or functions of God's law. Um, and we've talked about the... Was it, I, I'm forgetting the the official title of it, but there's kind of, there's the, the civil aspect of God's law, there's the ceremonial aspect of God's law, um, and then there's the, the, moral. the moral aspect. Moral. Um, and so when you read the Old Testament, especially God's covenant with Israel and all the laws that we read in Leviticus and Numbers and in parts of Exodus, um, you have to keep kind of those categories in mind. Some of these things are um, they're more civil, meaning it's just guiding and directing the everyday life of the people of Israel. Um, there's ceremonial, which has to do with the worship that Israel offered to the Lord in terms of the sacrifices and the temp the tabernacle, later the temple, you know, hol holiness codes, purity, um, in terms of like sicknesses and diseases. And then there's, there's a moral uh, component to this. I mean, they're all moral in that sense, right. in one sense, but there's a specific... Um, aspect to these laws that transcend uh, any um, any nation, any time, any place. And the reason this is something thinking over this this past week and then this weekend, something I hadn't I hadn't thought of before. And it's in Leviticus um, 18. Look again at verse 24. And then when someone says, "Well, you know, why is it okay that we don't wear the same garment? You know, garments with." whatever, and why can we do that? And they couldn't, but, you know, we still can't have homosexuality. Look at verse 24, and let, let's think about the significance and the weight that God is putting on sexual sin. It says, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land, literally, this is gross imagery, vomited out its inhabitants. It says, but you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. 
And he goes back to it again. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. And he's saying, Israel, don't do this. Verse 28, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. And so keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. What's going on there? He's saying, look, these, these, chapter 18, all these unlawful sexual relationships that he's talking about, it's on account of that that God brought Israel as the agent of judgment to judge these people, to wipe them out, to remove them from the land. God didn't send Israel to judge these people because of the garments that they wore or because of they ate pigs or not ate pigs. It was because they were engaged in all the stuff that we could have read in chapter 18. Because there is, there is a moral weightiness to, to abusing and distorting God's plan for human sexuality um, that carries so much more weight than whether or not you have a mixed fabric garment. Um, and the other thing too, what's interesting, because all of this is unlawful sexual relationships, but thrown in there, and I don't think it's, it's not incidental, all this about don't lie with this, don't lie, don't lie. Verse 21, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So thrown in there in the midst of all this sexual deviancy is a hatred of children and a, a flippancy about the value of children to where they're offering them in the fire as sacrifices to a false god. Which is parallel to modern-day abortion in, the, yes. in what's being condemned there. And again, this hatred of children, this, this abuse, this, this murder of kids always comes along with sexual deviancy. It always comes along with rampant sexual immorality. And so, again, the point is, there is a weightiness to these issues and it's because for generations the Canaanites engaged in this that God finally, it was like he had his plan for Israel and part of that plan was Israel was God's agent of, agent of judgment on the Canaanites for their unrepentant sexual immorality and their evil treatment of their children. A, a good verse like you started with is 24, basically. Do not make yourself unclean by any of these things. And I'm going to stop right there. Uh, you got to remember that Israel comes out of Egypt surrounded by this very pagan culture in Egypt. Um, I, I don't know what kind of unity the Hebrew people had when they came out, but Moses unified them and they followed him and, you know, he led them out of Egypt. But they were, they, they, and they wandered around for 40 years. You got to remember in the wilderness they didn't have any lessons in desert survival. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why Moses went and lived 40 years in the, in the wilderness to learn how to find water and how to, you know, feed animals and, and those kinds of things. But this uncleanness is, is, is the foundation of all of it. It, it, it. Another word is a holiness. You know, God wanted a people separate and holy from the nations that surrounded him. And so he addressed everything, his sexuality, clothing, uh, uh, 
there's a good example, and I can't think of the guy's name now. It was in Watkinsville. I don't know if you remember Mark, but he was uh, some Ph.D. in molecular biology or something, and he came and spoke to Fight Club one time. And he talked about somewhere in Leviticus, and I couldn't find it right now if I had to, but somewhere he talks about the different kind of pottery. You know, if it's a brass pot, you can wash it and it'll be fine. If it's a clay pot, you need to get rid of it. There's, they, they talk about mold and mildew and leprosy mm-hmm. and all these things. These are just practical, everyday living uh, arrangements that God was trying. They weren't scientists. They didn't know. They weren't educated in, in fabrics and, and, and products such as pots and that kind of thing. And, and so God was very carefully to, uh, careful to lay out systematically a process by which they would, one, be able to survive and, and, and be clean uh, as, as contrast to their neighbors, as well as be holy and set an example. So, uh, so Leviticus, rather than being this thou shalt not chapter, is really a good practical how to live well in a pagan land. Well, that's a good point. And if you, if you can turn to the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 1, so way back there in the in your New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 1. One of the, well, there's several ways to do this, but one, one way to see if a law in the Old Testament is still binding today is if it's repeated in the New Testament. That's pretty obvious, right? So in, in, if you remember back when we went through the book of Acts a while ago, uh, when Peter is on the rooftop, remember when he's, uh, people are making him lunch? I think he was in... Uh, He's in the port city oh, yeah. at Simon the Tanner's house, and he's out on top of the roof waiting for lunch to be made, and he gets that vision of all the animals coming down in that, in that blanket, essentially, and there are clean and unclean animals, and the Lord says, rise, Peter, kill and eat, and he says, I've never, ever eaten non-kosher food. Like, I'm, I never have eaten anything unclean, and the Lord has to tell him three times what the Lord has called clean, do not call unclean. And Peter is realizing that after Christ's death and resurrection, all the ceremonial laws have been fulfilled and taken away in Christ. So there is no longer a need to convert to Judaism to be a Christian. You don't have to offer sacrifices. You don't have to wear uh, certain kinds of clothes. You don't have to eat, uh, you know, you don't have to avoid pork or unclean food. Or be circumcised. Yeah, right. All all that stuff is taken away. That's not necessary for salvation. It's not necessary for the Christian life. And so that's all gone. But the rules that remain would be the moral law. Uh, That's what we're still bound by. And you'll see here, 1 Timothy 1, uh, amongst other passages, Paul is repeating this idea. So look with me here. Uh, Paul is critiquing people who misuse the Old Testament law. So I'll start earlier on. Look at, we'll start in verse 5. First uh, Timothy 1, 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, that's Old Testament law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accord in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, this was pointed out by some other people, but I thought this was very illuminating. If you look, look with me here at the passage. So 
When he says the law, you can guess Ten Commandments is not going to be super far from his thinking based on how the New Testament authors will quote parts of the Ten Commandments. But look at, I I don't know that I ever noticed this until more recently. Look at verse 9 toward the end of the verse. He starts giving lists of specific sins, and he starts with the Fifth Commandment. So, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, that would correspond to honor your father and mother, right? So, for, so he's condemning those who strike their father's mother. That's the fifth commandment. What's the very next thing he mentions? Murderers. What's the very next commandment? The sixth commandment is thou shalt not murder. So you can already tell Paul is picking up the second table of the law. He's picking up the fifth commandment and he's moving forward. And you're going to see he goes straight through the back half of the Ten Commandments. So commandment five, mothers and fathers. Commandment six, murderers. The next commandment is don't commit adultery. That's commandment number seven, right? So you're expecting sexual morality to be next in the list. Look at verse 10. The sexually immoral, remember that's the word pornoia, the word for general sexual immorality. It could be any kind of sexual sin that's not a man and a woman in the context of marriage. It's, it's, it's a junk drawer term for all sexual immorality that's not a man and a woman in marriage. It includes everything you can think of. And so that, that's, that's verse 10, but then he keeps going. Men who practice homosexuality. Now, uh, we're going to get into this in just a second, but let me, let me continue. We'll come back to that. The next one he mentions is enslavers. And if you look in the ESV as a footnote there, enslavers are anyone who takes someone captive in order to sell him into slavery. That corresponds with a commandment. Guess what? Don't steal. That's the eighth commandment. This is man stealing. Okay. It's stealing someone out of their livelihood and selling them into slavery. It's a form of theft. It's also condemned right after the Ten Commandments in Exodus 21. So that, that fits. And now what's the ninth commandment? Don't bear False, false witness. witness. Now look what he has here. Liars, Liars and perjurers. So we know for sure, like for sure, Paul is thinking of the second half of the Ten Commandments. Like it's, it's got to be. And he goes commandment five, six, seven, eight, and nine. Uh, coveting is not, I don't think, mentioned here. But he has five, six, seven, eight, nine in order, which means right next to pornoi, the word for sexually immoral people, you have this strange Greek wor- word that had never been used in Greek as far as we know. We have no recording of this Greek word ever being used before Paul uses it in two of his letters. Okay? The word is arsenikoite. Arsenikoite. Now, that word had never been used, so we don't have like a parallel text where the word is used, so we can compare it and figure out what Paul meant, right? Which makes it difficult. So people will come running in and say, it's not talking about homosexuality, it's talking about some other thing over here. But let's stop and think. Is the likelihood all, if, it, if we had no idea what the word meant, arsenikoite, if we didn't know what that word meant in Greek, are we already thinking it's got to have to do with sexual morality because of where it is in the flow of thought? Yeah, it's right next to pornoi, sexual, sexual immoral. So it's got to be connected in some way to sexual sin. Well, let me just, let me, let me tell you this. This is so illuminating. Kevin Young pointed this out. Okay, okay don't, I hope this doesn't get complicated. Leviticus was originally written in Hebrew, okay? But a couple hundred years before Jesus, it was translated into Greek, Septuagint. When the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it normally quotes the Septuagint, the, Septuagint, the Greek translation. Now, that, that matters because you've got to hear this. Let me, let me, I'm going to read you the, the Greek, uh, it's page 64 in the book. I'm going to read you the Greek of uh, Leviticus 20.13. So remember, we just read it. Uh, a man should not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. Now listen to what that sounds like in Greek. I'll just read part of it. It says, arsenos koitin gunikos. In other words, a man, ars- the word arsenos is the word for man. Koitain is taking someone to bed in a sexual way, to lie in bed with them sexually, koitain. And gunikos is the word for woman. So a man shall not bed, a man shall not bed a man, take a man to bed as he would a woman. It's an abomination. Now, the, the two Greek words for a man 
being taken to bed by another man are the words arsenos and koitain. And what did Paul do? Paul read that verse and he put them into one new Greek word. He made, it, he made those two words, arsenos, a man going to bed, koitos. He put them together and made a new Greek word, arsenikoites. So when people say the word has nothing to do with homosexuality, Paul is always referencing the Greek Old Testament. And guess what? This could not be clearer. In the context of the Ten Commandments, in the context of the commandment, seventh commandment, not to commit adultery, when he's mentioning sexual sin, pornoi, sexually immoral people, he puts right next to it, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, a man shall not bed a man, arsenikoites, uh, as he would a woman, it is an abomination. It could not be clearer what Paul's referring to in this text. People will try to write their dissertation to say it doesn't mean what it's saying. But even a very simple looking at this, is, is, it's, it's, it's incredibly obvious. And um, so thoughts on, the, the, on, on what Paul is doing in this passage? Well, I'll make a, a comment. Um, it's important what you just did by going back to the Old Testament, going back to... Um, the official background for what Paul was doing. Um, because a lot of times folks will want to look at first century culture and draw out one thing over here, one thing over there. Oh, that's what Paul must have been referencing. But we have to keep in mind, Paul's primary foundation for everything he taught was the Old Testament first. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the Greek culture of his time. Paul obviously was very well versed in Greek culture. He understood. He, I mean, he he was very well read. I mean, when he's in Athens, he's quoting different Greek poets and various stuff like that. Um, so he's very ver well versed in Greek culture, Greek the Greek mindset, their their worldview and stuff like that. But when Paul is making a moral point, he always bases his morality in the Old Testament or in, you know, what had been revealed through Christ and the other apostles. He never goes outside to culture to hang a major doctrinal point on something outside of Scripture. Uh, and the reason why that matters is people have come in and said, well, what Paul was really dealing with was some sort of pederasty, a, 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 an adult male and, um, you know, a young boy, which was very common in the Roman Empire. That's really all Paul was against. He wasn't against all types of homosexual relationships. Committed monogamous. Yeah, he, just, he was just against certain, certain bad varieties of it. But here's the thing. There's a word for that, right. for that type of relationship, and Paul chose not to use it. Again, it, it's, it's, it's foolish to think Paul didn't know what the word he, the common word for that um, was. He knew that. It was, it was a, a word that he would have had access to, he would have understood, and he did not use that word because that's not what he was referring to. He, the, the way he brings this together is when he, the arsenokoites, is he is giving a, a, a prohibition that covers all every single type of man-to-man -man sexual relationship, no matter how you define it. It is a blanket prohibition, condemnation, um, that this is sinful and it's evil. He's not simply focusing on one narrow uh, possibility. He, he's, he's drawing from the Old Testament and applying it. He's like, this covers everything. It's, it's similar to the porneia word for sexual immorality that covers Every form of sex outside of marriage. Right. So that, you know, somebody, well, what about this? Well, you didn't specifically, so, no, Paul's like, all of it. All of it outside of marriage is bad. And so the point of arson and coitus, at least one big point, I think, is Paul is, is getting specific to say, it doesn't matter how you try to define it, it's still sin. And that culture did not, did not necessarily define it as sin. 
and, and but Paul is, the, the Bible right. is. And so that's Paul trying to make a distinction from the behavior he's observing in the culture to what's prohibited, even as far back as Leviticus mm-hmm. of the Bible. Now, let me, let me take you to another text. So go to your left here to 1 Corinthians 6, and Paul gives the same exact Greek word again, but this time he adds another word, which is worth noting. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, again, if you look at 1 Corinthians 5, 1, he condemns incest. If you look later in chapter 5, he condemns all sexual immorality. If you look at 1 Corinthians 6, he condemns sex uh, with a prostitute later in the chapter. Uh, In chapter 7, he condemns uh, other forms of sexual morality. So he's covering all kinds of issues here. But look at chapter 6, because this verse is both clear and hope-giving. Look with us at verses 9 to 11. By the way, if you want to remember the text... It happens to be the same verses. So 1, Corinthians, 1 Timothy 1, it's verses 9 to 11. And 1 Corinthians 6, it's also verses 9 to 11. That helps with our memory. So I can never remember anything. So 1 Timothy 1, verses 9 to 11. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. If you can remember those, those are, those are two important texts. So 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. I just have to stop there every time I read this. Even in Paul's day, it was easy to be deceived about this list. And it's more easy to be deceived probably today than it was even then. So Paul says, do not be deceived. And here's the list. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, and the ESV has, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now we'll finish the text in a second, but let's look at the key term here. So Paul has added a Greek word. You ready? So we've already got our synechoites, a man who goes to bed with a man. He's already got that word here. And I'm not going to be overly graphic, but I don't know how it's to exact. I'm, I'm going to be careful how I say this, but I'm, I'm going to try to be as clear as I can. The, there's a new Greek word. You can't see it in English per se, uh, but if you look at the ESV at the bottom, there's a footnote. It says the two Greek terms translated by this phrase refer to the passive and active partners in consensual homosexual acts. Now, the other word is now a new word, malakoi. Okay, malakoi. Now that word malakoi is used in the Gospel of Matthew, for instance, describing when Jesus says, uh, why did you go out to see John the Baptist preach? Did you go out to see, uh, he, he said, if you want to see someone dressed in soft clothing, you, you go into the king's palace, but he's outside dressed in rough clothing. The word soft, soft clothing, is the word malakoi. Jesus uses the word to describe so that, clothing that is soft, malakoi, malakos. So what in the world does Paul mean by the word soft here. The word, the word, it probably, it, it has overtones of, of uh, the word effeminate here. Some, some translations will say the effeminate, uh, things like that in the, in the text. Um, let me make an argument really quick here for what I think is going on. Um, let's look at it one more time. Middle of verse nine. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. So we're in the context of sexual sin, right? Nor idolaters. Now let me stop. You already kind of mentioned this. With, with idolatry, sexual sin almost always happened. So when you went to a temple to worship a false god, sexual immorality was normal. Cult prostitution is in both testaments. It's condemned everywhere, but it's all over the culture. I mean, it's hard to even believe the stuff that happened in pagan temples. So idolatry and immorality were linked inseparably. So let's watch. The sexually immoral, nor idolaters, which is linked to sexual morality, nor adulterers, that's sexual morality, right? Nor, and then he says, arsenikoites and malakoi, 
nor uh, thieves, nor the greedy, nor uh, idolater, uh, nor um, drunkards. Now, in the actual Greek, um, it, it, the actual word order is that you have sexually immoral, idolaters, and the other word malakoi, then you have the word arsenikoite. Okay, before we all get lost here. Clearly, the context is sexual morality. Right? These four words. Sexual morality, idolatry, and then he has malakoi and arsenikoite. So these four words together are all, refer, are all linked to sexual morality. And we know for sure adultery is on one side of the word malakoi, and the word men having sexual relationships with men is on the other side. And in between, adultery and men going to bed with men is the word malakoi. So this word for effeminate, soft, effeminate, that word is in between adultery and men who take men to bed. So... Uh, contextually already, we're thinking this has to be some kind of sexual morality. W what are we talking about exactly here? And I think that very clearly the ESV is correct in what, it, what it's saying here. And again, I, I don't know how to, this is going to be the most blunt anything I'm going to say today. This is very blunt. But um, as the ESV says here, the, the, the active participant in a homosexual act is the word arsenikoites, the man taking a man to bed. That's the active participant. The passive one playing the effeminate role in the sexual act is Malakoi. That's, that, that's how clear these two words actually are. Paul is referring to both the passive and active partic participant in the same-sex sexual act, and we know that this is not referring to pederasty because a child who's being abused or raped is not a willing participant. God would not condemn someone who's being raped. You're not going to be condemned for being a victim. He's, he's got to be condemning someone who's a willing participant. Otherwise, why are you being condemned? You get that? So if, if someone is raped, uh, it, God would only condemn the rapist. He would not condemn the victim. But here, why is he condemning both the active and passive participant, the, the arsenikoite and the malakoi? Why are both being condemned? It's, it's, it, if, if, if effeminacy just simply means a certain way of carrying yourself, you think, you think that that's the main issue here is like a sort of an effeminate demeanor? That's where you're going to go to hell if you have an effeminate demeanor? I don't think that's what he's getting at. The word effeminacy here is referring to in the sexual encounter, the one playing the feminine role versus the masculine role. So I know that's very direct and blunt, but I think that is, we got to be that clear because that's what the text is saying. And so the willing participants in both regards are being condemned, and it says they will not inherit the kingdom left without repentance. Comments on that before we get to the hopeful part of verse 11. The only thing I would say is, again, that's one of the reasons that, like the Chicago statement, the inerrancy of Scripture. And, 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 and we live and breathe and die by the inerrancy of Scripture because that's, this is God's Word. So, Right. No, I, I agree. Um, and, and very clearly, he, he defines these different activities very clearly. Right, right. So pe people who say that this is not clear, I just don't think that they're being honest with the text, honestly. I, I think the bias is very strong against it. But let's look at the hopeful verse, verse 11. Greg, can you read 11? Yeah. It says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So how does this provide hope for someone who has been through whatever list of sins here is, is involved with? Well, it, it shows you don't have to be defined by your sin. You don't have to be defined by it, no matter what it is, whether it is homosexuality or just sexual immorality in general or being a drunkard. You know, we talk about alcoholism. It's an addiction um, you don't have to be defined by that. That's what Paul, the, this, this is what some of the Corinthians used to be. And he says, you're not that anymore. Now, that's not to say that once you become a believer, that automatically all desires, go, you know, bad desires go away. But it is saying you're no longer defined by that. You're setting a new path, charting a new course. 
with the help of the Spirit of God, according to the Word of God. You've got a new, a new nature planted in you. You're now alive to God. You're sensitive to God, to His truth. Um, and what, that's what Paul's saying. I mean, look at that. You were washed. That means you were, you were cleaned. You were dirty in these sins. You were unclean in these sins. And now God has made you clean from them. You were sanctified. You were set apart. You were justified. That means you were declared righteous um, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Um, sin does not have to define you anymore if you're a believer. It just doesn't. And these are texts that when we struggle with sin, we need to come back to and be like, that's not who I am in Christ. Mm-hmm. I am not defined by this particular sin that used to dominate my life. Maybe it was one or two things. I don't know. But it doesn't have to define you anymore. And it will not define you anymore if we bring in other scriptures as well. Again, it doesn't mean there won't be a struggle. It doesn't mean that you won't have desires that you have to fight against. But it does mean something, something utterly foundational has changed um, in you because of Christ um, and now you're no longer defined by those particular sins that used to mark out you as a person. So, and we're almost done, but what we mean is there's been a big debate in the last few years. Can someone who struggles with same-sex attraction say, I am a gay Christian, mm-hmm. I don't act off of it. I'm not living with another person of the same sex. I'm not, I'm not doing anything, but I struggle with those attractions, those temptations. So I call myself, I label myself a gay Christian. There's been a huge movement to say, yes, you can do that. That's absolutely fine. This text won't allow that kind of talk any more than saying, I'm an adulterous Christian. I'm a drunk Christian. We, we can't label ourselves by our sin struggles. Uh, like you said, someone may still have the struggle and they're fighting mm-hmm. against it, but we should not label ourselves by that sin struggle. We should not say, I am a gay Christian. I don't act off it, but I'm a gay Christian. No, Paul doesn't say such are some of you. It is definite, like the guy we listened to, James White talked about this, such were some of you. Mm-hmm. Every single Greek manuscript of this, of this text says the same thing. It's past tense. Such were some of you, but you've been washed You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You know, it's really interesting. I know we have to go, but uh, comparing and you were some and, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were clean. And then you go back to Leviticus and do not make yourself unclean. So mm-hmm. he's look, that's a that's a big contrast. We've now been washed. We're now clean. We're not the person we used to be. We're a new creation in Christ. Amen. Amen. Greg, can you close this? Yeah, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is so clear uh, on these things. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us all uh, clear heads, sober minds. Lord, that we would not be led astray by those who would twist and distort your word. Um, Lord, give us courage to speak the truth and to say what your word says and to say it clearly without apology, without fear, without shame. Um, Lord, in this in the culture we live in, which is so hostile to what we just talked about. Uh, Lord, help us speak the truth, as Paul says, in love. And uh, Lord, help us uh, to be very patient, um, to be long-suffering, as old King James says, when it comes to speaking the truth to people, Lord, because this is offensive in our day. Uh, But Lord, it is the truth of God that brings life. Um, and Lord, all of the Bible, you will use it to, to cut away error and to reveal truth. Um, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us to just know this well in our hearts, uh, Lord, so that we can give a faithful testimony to the truth. And Lord, help us always point people back to the, the life-changing power of the gospel. Uh, Lord, however bad these sins may be, however consuming and dominating they may be, in Christ we can be different 
In Christ, we can change. In Christ, we can walk in newness of life. And I pray, God, that we would always hold that hope out to people. Um, And Lord, as only you can do, Lord, we know that no matter how persuasive we are, we cannot persuade anyone into the kingdom of God. It takes a supernatural regenerating work of the Holy Spirit to give new life and new eyes. And Lord, help us persevere in speaking the truth, Lord, and pray fervently that through what we say, your spirit would bring life, new life to people who were ensnared in homosexuality or any of the other sins that we have uh, heard mentioned today. God, thank you for such a hope and such a gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.